Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Commercial Relocation Happy Hour. I am Rob with you as always, and Ed, Ed Katz is on the other line and joins us as always. How you doing, Ed? I'm delightful. Uh, delightful? I guess that's okay. Man, I'm, that's I'm just, happy. I, it's, I'm put, let me put this... Delightful. I like yeah, that me, word. Let me put this Jack Daniels aside here. Oh, I'm I'm tipsy. No, hey, I mean, I'm, I'm happy as a lark. I was going to say, don't put it aside, just... Throw it back real quick. Just chug it. Okay. <laughs> All right, Rob. <laughs> All right. Last week's podcast um, was how to kind of manage employees, right? How to manage your employees. And I think that you, you, you have this topic for the, today's podcast, and I think it kind of maybe goes a little deeper or at least complements last week's podcast. So I'm, I'm anxious to jump into this one and kind of dive into it a little bit. You ready? I'm ready. All right, everybody saw the title of this podcast before they clicked on it, How to Make Peace Between Operations and Sales. And boy, this is a big one, Ed. This is going to be fun to get into. Um, so let's just dive in. With your background, your tremendous amount of knowledge, and, and the experience you've had for all these years in the industry, I'm sure, everybody can tell I'm being sarcastic here, Ed, I'm sure you never had a conflict between sales and operations at your company. I mean, you made sure that these people worked in a harmony that no one's ever seen, right? Yeah, right, Rob. <laughs> this sounds like I'm being set up for a big fall off the cliff. <laughs> Let me tell you something. When I first started my moving company, I mean, I didn't know anything about anything. And it was I was just in kindergarten, kindergarten of the School of Hard Knocks. And I'll never forget this. I would go into work on a Monday morning after a weekend of office moves, and I would like run for cover. My salesperson, my one salesperson would come up to me and whine and complain and moan and say, you know, for three months I've been writing letters, making phone calls, trying to get this big Fortune 500 company to throw us a bone, give us just one test move to do. Because if we could ever get them as a, an account, they're moving every week and so remember i told you mr katz that this saturday last saturday the past this was a very very important move and if we could just do a great job we're going to get a lot more business well i heard from the customer and the crew did a lousy job and they tore everything up and the job took longer and oh they she was miserable with i mean just i thought oh no this is this is horrible this is terrible so I start walking back to my office and I'm depressed already. It's Monday morning. And in the meantime, two of our supervisors are standing at my door, walking in unannounced and saying, Mr. Katz, you need to rein in, rein in our salesperson. We're not taking any more jobs out that he books unless you, you teach him not to tell the customer we can do all these things that we can't do. And the job was supposed to go you know, six hours on Saturday went nine hours and oh, it was just, I mean, I was going crazy. I just, I mean, I, I was like being tugged between sales and operations. My heart of course is in sales. Would you believe I'm, I love sales and I don't like operations. I mean, I teach it. 
I understand it. I'm great at teaching it, but I don't like to be sucked into the black hole of operations. Anyhow, that aside, I had to resolve the conflict. And um, I had to come up with a process. I mean, I just didn't know what to do. Um, so I'll, let, I'll throw the microphone back to you if you want to ask well, me another question. Yeah. But the answer to your question was I had a miserable life. I had a miserable life until I had to figure out a process. Well, you know, I think people hear what you're describing in that situation and, and see it as, you know, something they deal with, you know, not hopefully not every day, but they've dealt with in the past. They see it. It, it happens. I think the issue is a lot of GMs or managers or owners uh, don't really do a lot to actually fix the problem. They put a Band-Aid on the situation to kind of get those guys to just kind of, hey, don't worry about it. You know, Tommy's going to do a better job next time. Just go go on out there and, you know, just make sure. We'll, we'll make sure Tommy does a little better job in sales, and, and it'll be fine next time. And they go away. So there's really no solution. So what did you do to make sure you had a permanent? Because I know you did something, Ed. We, we all know you. You did something to make sure you had a permanent fix to this type of situation. Well, one thing I found out was this. Some some customers like to lie. So let's say that the salesperson did an estimate. And by the way, when we first started, all we ever did was give a brochure. Believe it or not, we had a brochure. It was pretty basic, pretty unsophisticated. But anyhow, that aside, we had a brochure. But, but just educate the customers or, or update the customer or the listeners. Uh, how do you feel about brochures now? Oh. I don't believe in them at all. I don't think people, I don't think people read them. And if they read them, they don't believe what's in them, you know, like quality of service or quality of excellence and all that. Waste BS. of money. You know, I don't believe in them at all. But anyhow, we had a, some semblance of a brochure and we gave a price. And so let's say that the customer said to the salesperson, uh, we're not taking any of the chairs with us. Right. So that was conveyed to the salesperson when he did the estimate. And then on the day of the move, we'd never had our salespeople never, ever, ever run jobs. We had them stay the heck out of operations. And that's a whole nother story. I think we covered that in an earlier podcast, but we so did. the crew goes out to do the move and the job instead of taking six hours takes eight or nine hours because it was a load and go load and deliver. And for whatever reason, the volume that we had didn't fit on the two trucks. So they had to go back and make a second trip and the origin and destination were 45, 50 minutes apart. And you can imagine, you know, we're still on the clock and all those types of things. And we, I find out later that the customer put a label on everything, including the 50 chairs that they were not supposed to move. But we find out later that uh, Steelcase did not deliver the new chairs to the new office in time, so they had to move the existing chairs, and they never told the crew. And when the crew had any questions, the customer told a little white lie and said, well, I told your salesperson that everything was moving. So there we go. That was many times the reason that a job would take longer. We had, So I had to come up with some way of if we weren't going to send the salesperson out to run the job, and by the way, for those moving companies that send the salesperson out to run the job that he booked, what happens when there are three or four of his jobs at the same time all happening 
on the same day at the same time. I mean, how to, what are you going to do? Send them on the biggest one? Yeah. And how about the other three? So, I mean, that's why we kept salespeople out of operations. I mean, it made no sense whatsoever. We had trained professional supervisors that learned how to follow a very specific scope of services. In other words, every estimate that, that we generated after this constant turmoil conflict we had between sales and operations to make that go away. Part of the puzzle was every estimate had to clearly define what the customer was responsible for and what the movers were responsible for. And if everything went except the chairs, it would say Peachtree movers will do the following. Move all your furniture and contents except the chairs. That would be in writing. So that, guess what that made that problem go away. So if the customer had labels on everything, we had that process where the supervisor would call the customer contact aside. So you're, what I'm getting at is this is a short podcast for us. I mean, done. You, uh, you included a scope of services to the estimating process and conflict between sales and operation is gone that's all we have to do is that's kind of what i'm getting right yeah right <laughs> no that's not it yeah how many how many times have you taken our iomi training <laughs> you know darn well this is just part of the this is like the first and second base but third base and and running into home come next you know okay yeah. the scope of service has helped tremendously but still when I started my moving company, I was told that three men can move a thousand pounds per hour or move a room of furniture per hour. And if it's an office move, you just say, okay, if there's an elevator, you add 10%. If it's a long carry, you add another 10%. If, you know, steps, another 15%, whatever percentages. I mean, it, I found over the years that there was absolutely, absolutely no relationship between cube and pounds and how many men for how long. I mean, it's just, there was no relationship. Okay. So what you're saying is the scope of services was half of the process. You changed in estimating the jobs, but you're getting ready to share with us that second half. Right. Well, I found again, early on, the only jobs we got were, 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 when we were the lowest bidder. Right. And so a job that was supposed to finish at five o'clock on a Sunday, it's now nine o'clock at night. And I'm driving around North Lake office park looking for people I can pick up who I'll pay you $10 cash an hour. If you help us on a job that's, you know, a few blocks from here that unload the truck. I mean, it was like a nightmare. So I started studying other industries, other service industries. And I found that every other service industry that has successful companies operating within them, base their estimates not on cube and pounds, but on man hours, how long it takes for one man to do the entire job. Now, you know, whether it's a move or building an office building, one man doesn't build the whole building, one man doesn't do the whole move, but you boil it down to how long would it take for one man to do it? And now what's your window of time? So you can come up with total man hours and then it tells you how many men to put on the job. So I, I basically, I copied other service industry formulas that based it on man hours, and I applied that to the moving industry. And I found out that 97% of the time, 
you know, unless there was an elevator failure or the guys got lost or the customer added something, 97% of the time, jobs finished on time for the price quoted. I mean, that was like unheard of in our industry. We collected what we billed because we didn't have to go back to the customer and say, hey, you owe 30, 40, 50% more and try to make up excuses. We had the very specific finite scope of services that clearly defined the, for example, that the customer was responsible for having their copier prepared, have the toner vacuumed out, have the paper tray secured, have the electronic sorter disconnected, you know, and they were to move all their laptop computers themselves. And in the days, if they had desktop computers, they had to have them prepared before we got there. In other words, all of the, if they had a, a, um, a, a coffee maker that was uh, connected to the, with a copper copper tube or pipe to the water system they had to have that disconnected before we got there if they had an ice maker on their refrigerator they had to have that disconnected before we got there if everything was going to go except the reception room furniture all that that they were responsible for was spelled out in writing in the scope of services and then we would put what we were responsible for okay but it makes me ask a question because I'm, I'm picking here ed 97 percent of the time you said it was successful so it wasn't 100%. I'm picking here. What, what was the reason when, when those few times that a job did go over or something happened, did, were you able to find out what the reason was for those? Yes. And we were not perfect, as I tell people. I told somebody this just last night, that only one person walks or walked on waters. It wasn't me. It's not me. And it's, I don't think it's you. And so, yes, <clears throat> 3% of the time. Yes, sir. I'm kidding. Go ahead. Are you raising your hand? Do you walk on water? Okay. All right. I, I go down fast, but yeah, go yeah, ahead. Okay. I, I, I'd be afraid to say that, but anyhow, <laughs> he said that God, not me. Anyhow, um, we, if a job took longer, let's say it's supposed to go eight hours and it took nine hours. That's over. That's longer than it should have gone. First thing I would do before I talked to anyone was I'd go and to the file, open up the file and make sure the math was correct. Did that salesperson follow our proprietary formula for estimating man hours? Did he, did he capture the unique origin log logistics? Did he capture the unique destination logistics? And did he capture the volume? And I could look and then you multiply the three together and you get man hours was the math maybe wrong. So let's say I go through the file and it appears that he captured the volume, he captured the origin logistics, and he captured the destination logistics, and the math is correct. He came up with man hours and then he divided that by the window of time and he had number of men, number of trucks for how long. So my first inclination is it looks like it's not a sales issue. It's, then I'm going to focus on operations. What I learned a long time ago is you don't go to the crew and say, hey, were there any problems on the job? Like, was there a service failure? Because these guys don't want to narc on each other. They have to work with each other, right? Sure. So I found that it would be, if I really want to find out what's going on, and I know I'm going to be blasted for not trusting people and being cynical and all that, but I did look, live and work in New York City for four years of my life, so I am who I am. But anyhow, I would go and talk to individual crew members, not in front of an audience, 
but I would play poker with them. And I would say, now, I heard what the other guy said about what happened on the job, but I'd like to hear from you. Why do you, you know, what, why did this job take longer? So when they thought that I already knew what they knew, they might say, well, uh, Jason, you know, Jason had was sick and, and he sat in the truck and he didn't work the whole time. And see, if I had asked the crew in general, nobody would have said anything because I don't want Jason to get in trouble for having a hangover, let's say, from the night before. But if one guy out of seven or six is not working, that's a large percentage. So there's my problem right there. So in order to find out what the problem was, I would talk to individual crew members and, again, play poker by saying, now, I've talked to the other guys, and I just want to hear your side of the story. So that way I would drill down and find out, was it a service failure? Well, let's say there was no service failure. Let's just say there was no service failure, that everybody worked in harmony, in unison, team approach, bucket brigade, everything hummed, but it just took longer. Well, now I have to go back to sales. And the only thing, if the math is correct and the origin logistics look correct, I then take the salesperson, I say, call the customer, ask them if we can please go to the new office where they are. We can go after hours or when they're winding down. And I would like to re-inventory everything with you to make sure that the volume you captured is accurate and correct. We would go back and re-inventory everything. I'm not here to make a fool out of the salesperson. I want to prevent the same problem from happening again. And lo and behold, I find this was a move for MCI. The reason the job took longer and cost more money, there was a two shelf bookcase sitting on top of each of the 20 desks. And the salesperson assumed that that would ride attached to the top of the desk. Unbeknownst to him, you had to unscrew them, take them off, so they move this separate, like bookcases. Does that make sense? Yes. So that, that that's where the extra volume came in, and that was became a very common desk for MCI. So isn't it great that I went back with him and we figured out why the job took longer because there was more volume than he accounted for. It took up more floor space. Thank goodness I went back to capture that. Or another time at Piedmont Center. He assumed that we were coming down one of the two passenger elevators in front of the building because on that phase of that building, that's they only had two elevators. After talking to the crew, we found that way at the back of the other side of the building was a freight elevator. They had just for hauling freight for office furniture. And he assumed we were coming right out the glass doors, which was a short push to the truck where there was an extra 150 feet or 200 linear feet of pushing to get to this other elevator, which added not volume, but time. So I always used to teach my salespeople, follow the path of the furniture. Don't assume anything. Ask the security guard, what elevator do we use? How do we get in and out of the building? All these little nuances. He played detective. That's how we prevented the same problem from happening again. So the, the formula works. If you capture, you know what they say, garbage in, garbage out. If you capture the right logistics at the origin and destination and the correct volume, and you don't have a service failure, jobs finish on time for the price quoted. You know, I, I've had a similar uh, situation happen where we had a salesperson learning the IOMI method. And uh, to your point, furniture and things like that. I remember having uh, a big client who had a lot of file cabinets in some file rooms 
But on top of those, Ed, if you remember, the uh, they used to have what looked like almost a two-drawer, another little lateral filing cabinet on top of the four-drawer with two sliding doors, and they would just put a bunch of uh, binders and things in there. And salespeople who would go in and just count that as a lateral filing cabinet, not remembering that those have to come off the top. They're just sitting up there, and those go as another bookcase if you will or file cabinet if you will and uh it it would increase the volume that you had to move so yeah you made me think of that and you're exactly right that is a a good point on how volume can be missed when we're using your formula i'm chuckling to myself because i remember whenever we had a newbie a newbie is a new mover new employee on the job once those were taken off you could not move them right side up because they had false bottoms so you had to turn them aside the narrow end, and that's when they they always had the newbies dolly them up because that sliding door would come down like a guillotine. <laughs> yep, they didn't know anybody. They they smashed their fingers, and the crew would think that was so funny. <laughs> watch watch Billy as he dollies that up. He doesn't realize that door is going to slide down and then hit his finger. I'll tell you. <laughs> Some of these guys were so comical, but anyhow, you're right. You're right. All right, so it, it makes me go. Now we've kind of went through everything. I mean, we've adopted the scope of services um, on every estimate. We're now using your man hour formula for estimating. So, I mean, logic says everything going forward hummed, right? No problems, no issues from there. You're not on drugs, are you? You are in the movie industry, right? <laughs> you're not. Oh, you're drinking. You're you're the wine connoisseur. You're the you're the king of, of spirits, wine and spirits, right? But anyhow. So there's yeah, right. more. There's you know, more to the story. Yeah, you know, I was in business. You know, I had my moving company, 24 years, and so you know, over the years, we would have every once in a while, a salesperson, who became the most important person he knew. Am I being a little sarcastic here, like an undertone of I, sarcasm? I, I, I couldn't pick it up. Okay, but anyhow, <laughs> no, I'm kidding, of course. He became a prima donna. He, I mean, like everything he touched turned to gold. I mean, he quoted the job, he booked them. His closing ratio was phenomenal. But it's like the more successful he became, his name was Mike, the more successful Mike became, the more of a prima donna he became. And next thing I know, he's not completing all the paperwork like, you know, the the logistics at the origin and the destination. And we need all this information and we need the total volume so that we know how much equipment to send out on the job. But he's so important. He's booking so much business. He doesn't have time for the details of when he captures the inventory and when he captures the logistics. So he's not filling out all his paperwork. So he, at our moving company, again, our salespeople did two tasks, quoted jobs, and booked moves. They did not fill out equipment load sheets. I know this is like heresy in the movie industry, but I wanted them to make that cash register ring. And I had other support people do that kind of work that, that you know, that we had a formula we, we followed based on the inventory, what equipment and what type of job, an internal move, external move, load and, load and go, load and deliver, or round robin, shuttle, um, or, uh, you know, van rotation jobs. So all of a sudden, my support people are coming to me and complaining that, 
hey, you know, don't misunderstand us, Mr. Katz. We love Mike. You know, he's great. He's wonderful. But he, we can't do our equipment load sheets because he's not filling out his paperwork, you know, properly. So, look, I don't want to lose this guy. I mean, I love this guy. And he's booking like a million dollars worth of business a year. And that's pretty good for a local office mover in Atlanta, Georgia in the day. So, <laughs> I... I uh, sit down and I say, hey, can you help us out? I know you're, you know, I'm, I'm watering this down. This is why I probably shouldn't be a manager because I'm weak. But I said, you know, hey, you're wonderful. You're great. We never had anybody like you. You're booking so much business. The customers love you. Can you help us out here in the back office, though? We need you to tighten up a little bit and give us more information so we can do our equipment load sheets so we know what to send out on the jobs instead of, you know, we have to call you while you're out doing estimates and you don't return the calls in a timely manner so the people that have to fill out the equipment load sheets so we can get the trucks loaded the night before so they're ready to go out at seven in the morning, you know, but all the, you know, and he doesn't nod or smile. He looks like stares at me like I think, oh crap. I mean, I hope I'm not aggravating him. I mean, you know, I love the guy and he, Hopefully, you know, as a loyal employee. So anyhow, a week later, I talked to the people who were whining and complaining in the first place, the support staff. And I say, well, have you noticed a change? And they said, well, Mr. Katz, did you meet with him? <laughs> I knew there was a problem <laughs> with that question. And I said, yes. And they showed me the file of jobs he had just booked in the past few days. And nothing had changed. So what do you do next? I mean, I have to turn up the burner and I tried to have, you know, a come to Jesus meeting with him. It was kind of weak, wasn't it? The way I handled it. So again, I thought I have to do what I have to do. I sure hope that he doesn't quit, but I have to do this because he's, he's throwing a cog in the entire operation. I can't, I can't have this happen. So he came back in the office the next day and I said, Hey, when you have a moment, I need to chat with you. Did he come up to me five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour later? No, he never came up to me. I mean, he's so important. He didn't even come into my office and say, Mr. Katz, you want to talk? I finally go into his office. He's on the phone. I wait till he's off the phone. And I really sit down and have a come to Jesus meeting with him. And I really mean that because I said, look, I tried to explain to you the importance of you're doing your job so everyone else that supports you can do their job. And you, for whatever reason, are too important or too busy to help us out. So here's what we're going to have to do. From now on, you're going to arrange your schedule so that every day at exactly 3 o'clock, that's when we do our equipment load sheets that are going to be given to operations at 5, 5.30 to load the equipment the night before for the next day jobs. You're going to come into our office every day at three o'clock and sit with our administrative assistant. That's the person, as you know, who does the equipment load sheets. And you're going to do this for 10 days, 10 days. Every day you're coming in at three o'clock in the afternoon. And you're going to work with that person to do the equipment load sheets. And I hope you'll learn after the 10 day experience how important their job is and how much their job depends upon your doing your job. Do you think he nodded and smiled and said, okay, I get it? Do you think he did all that good body language? Hell no. No, and hell no. It was right, <laughs> and I was looking for some positive feedback, and he gave me none. And I said, do you have any questions? 
And I'm not even sure he answered. So now it's the next day. He's supposed to be there at three o'clock. It's now 3.05. What's going through my mind? Oh, crap. He quit. So now it's 3.20. He's still not there. Imagine I told him, come in every day at 3 o'clock, right? And then I asked some of the other people in the office, like, uh, have you heard from Mike? Have you, uh, uh, you know, I, I asked my my business partner, uh, have you heard from Mike that he turned his keys in? Or and I'm thinking he's quitting. I mean, I told him to be there at 3, right? Very, you know, he knew three o'clock. It's 20 to four, and he comes storming in the office, beat red. Imagine his face being beat red. Do you think he said, Hello, Mr. Katz, how are you? No, he didn't. <laughs> he goes right up to the administrative assistant's desk, sits down, beat red, doesn't say anything, and he's sitting next to this administrative assistant. And this happened like for the next four days, five days. And did he come in exactly at three o'clock? No, I guess the little Mikey in him to get even with me was, he never got there at three, but he got there at a reasonable time. Let's just say that. So the following Monday, my administrative assistant comes up to me, ready for this? And says, Mr. Katz, you know, Mike's been working with me for the past four or five days, and he, I think he understands how tough and difficult and challenging my job is. And I know he's supposed to come in another five days, but I'll be honest with you, Mr. Katz, I think he really learned a good lesson, and I think he's going to tighten up and be more diligent in filling out the information that I need so I can do my job. So maybe you'll give him a little slack and Tell him he doesn't have to come in the rest of the, the five days. I said, I have a better idea. I'm going to say no to that, okay? But you go back to him and tell him that I said no, which I just said no, but you convince me that he doesn't have to come in the next five days. You be the hero. I don't want you to be the bad person. I'll be the bad person. So... <laughs> He didn't have to come in after the five days. And really, from that time forward, um, he did the paperwork perfectly. There was never any problems or hiccups. And I guess the word is empathy. I think it went to his head that he was so great and so successful that he was too important, you know, too much of a prima donna to have to um, fill out the information, the paperwork that we needed to do our jobs. And would you believe for the next 30 days, would you believe he didn't say, hello, Mr. Katz, how are you? Would you be- could you believe that a man could be moody? Could be moody? Would you believe that? Oh, I believe it. Oh, I was shocked. That, I mean, it was so unbecoming of a man to be moody. But anyhow, finally, I think I was kind of silly a lot of times in the office. And one day we were out in the bullpen area where all the systems furniture was. And I made one of my silly remarks or did some of my stupid antics. And he forgot that he was angry at me and he laughed with everyone else. And then everything was cool after that. So anyhow, it makes me think, you know, as a salesperson, uh, he kind of lost perspective that he has external clients and internal clients to make all of those projects go successfully and I, he kind of lost sight of the internal clients that he had yeah that's a good way of putting it i never heard it described that way but you're spot on you're spot on yeah. well would you like to ask me one last question or do we run out of time 
No, we're, we're okay on time, but did, did uh, I mean, from that point forward, he had no other issues. So operations, obviously, they, they bought into what had happened and everything was good from there. Yeah, right. <laughs> what? Uh, listeners, I want you to know, I think I see a, two or three cases of vino on Rob's desk. We're on a Zoom conference call right now, and I think he's, I think he's drinking. But anyhow. No, those, those are empty. Oh, okay. They're all empty. Okay. That's, that's, that's wall treatment. Right? Yeah. That's the <laughs> I had the same problem with, with, um, with operations and I tried to get them to realize, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times, like, especially when I taught my in-person seminar, I would hear during the break operations managers description of salespeople to me that was like, all they do is take customers to lunch play golf with them and get those big commissions. They never knew how much they made, but all they knew in their mind was they had the easy part of the job. All they did was schmooze, charm the customer, wine and dine them, and make all these big fat commissions. That was their perspective. And I would say, you know something, and I said this to my own operations people, without the salesperson or sales personnel, we don't need you. Think about it. They're the ones that bring in the business. They're the ones that book the moves. And without them, we have no jobs. And without jobs, why do we need you or anybody here? Think about that. And I, you know, when they finally saw that perspective, I said, do you know what it's like being rejected all the time when they would call up a prospect and say, um, you know, can I come out and give you a price? And they say, no, we already got five other bids or, we give them a price and we're not the cheapest because as you know, we pay more than any other moving company in Atlanta. We really did. We paid premium salaries to our employees because they were so wonderful and, and professional and experienced and trained. And we, we, we gave it back to our employees. But so how would you like to be rejected all the time when the customer says we wanted to use you, but you're too expensive. You're charging us way more than the other moving companies. I mean, how would you like to be on the receiving end of that all the time? And I think most of them got it. And if I ever had a, an operations person who still didn't walk the walk and be part of the team and, and work in tandem with the sales people we had, then my next step would have been to have somebody else do the operations person's job for a day or week, whatever, and have that operations person literally shadow the salesperson for days and go out and see what their lives are like. You know how many times when I did estimates and I did sales, do you have any idea how many times I forgot where I parked my car in a high-rise parking garage? I mean, even though I said to myself, you stupid idiot, don't do what you did yesterday. Look and see where you're parked. And after a while, you know, you're doing so many estimates and you're so many different places and you, it all runs together. To this day, I go to Walmart and I forget where I parked my car. And yesterday it was number 36. In other words, I can remember, not 36. Yeah, it was. I don't know why. I looked at three and six. So I can't remember three and six. So I said 36. Those are the two rows I need to look for. And am I driving my car or my wife's car? I mean, you know, like, I mean, wait till you're 76 years old. You'll see. But can you imagine what it's like for a salesperson? You think I'm the only one that forgets where I parked my car? And how many times did we forget where we parked our cars? I mean, this this is what our lives are like, right? You're exactly right. 
You're exa- and I, I think that's a great way to do it. You know, walk in somebody else's shoes, as they say, right? Get a perspective of what they're going through and what their day's like. Because you're, you're exactly right. And that's a great point that it's, uh, sales isn't just, you know, fun and golf and dinners and, and uh, big commission checks. The salespeople put in a lot of hours. People don't realize it, but they do. And a lot of, a lot of times it's uh, not the normal business hours that they're doing things as well. You know, whether it's, you know, working up quotes and doing things like that or responding to emails and a lot of other things, you know, sometimes operations and, and office admin people are there certain hours of the days, but salespeople go home and they, they still do things. So I got to give you one postscript on this whole thing. And I'm going to mention his name, Ian Robbins. And he probably, unless somebody tells him to listen to this, he's probably not listening, but anyhow, Ian Robbins is so conscientious. My wife and I went to the Fox theater one night during the week and we came back after um, the, the um, we went to the theater probably at eight o'clock at night, probably went out for a little something to drink afterwards, got back our car, our, we had two cars, but picked up one of our cars at the office, which wasn't far from downtown Atlanta. And we walked in and sound asleep on the floor in his office is Ian Robbins had been working all evening on an estimate believe it or not. And I guess he got really tired and it's like 11, 1130 at night. Here he is sound asleep on the floor. I mean, I couldn't believe it. You're so right. I mean, talk about the hours that salespeople, just because they're not out meeting with prospects and clients during the day, doesn't mean they're not doing work at night and weekends and holidays. I mean, it's perception is reality. And unfortunately, the perception many times is that salespeople are not working when really, they really, really are. My, my wife always somewhat gets mad at me because we'll try to take a trip or a vacation. And she's like, you can't get away. Whether we go on a trip or a vacation, you know, we might be like, okay, babe, what are we doing tomorrow? Well, we're going to start at nine o'clock doing this. And she'll go, you get up at five 30 to, to do emails or do things that you, even though we're on vacation, that things that you still need to check in on. And, you know, that's just part of the life of sales, you know, and part of it might be that we're, somewhat control freaks. You know, we don't want to give it up. We don't want to miss an opportunity. We don't want to, you know, so that might be a fault we have, but some might also say it's a, uh, it's a strength as well. Yeah. Some of us like the, the nickname, no life. <laughs> well, that's, that's true too, isn't it, Ed? <laughs> All right. Well, another fun episode, as we always say, and in great conversation, hopefully the listeners uh, enjoyed that conversation and got a little something out of it. And if they're doing those things, good for them. Pat yourself on the back. If you're not, hopefully you got some new ideas on, on how to, you know, put some things in place to help operations and sales, you know, play nice together. Is that a nice way to say it, Ed? Playing the sandbox together. Yeah. Uh, they both make a huge difference uh, or a, I shouldn't say a difference. They both are a huge part of the formula to make the company successful. I agree. Amen. Well, thank you everyone for letting me flap my jaw again. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode of the commercial relocation happy hour. And until our next episode, go sell another move. <laughs>